Hello, am I live? Yes, I am. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Harry Sherrod, and a very warm welcome to the latest in the uh, Brooklyn's uh, Talks series. Uh, it's not very often we welcome uh, a world champion, um, but Mike was world champion in the Group C2, and I'm sure that he will be telling us more about that and his fascinating 50-year uh, uh, career in, uh, in motorsport and winning in all sorts of uh, categories. Um, Mike and I actually used to race against each other in uh, sports car racing, but he was racing a Chevron B36 and I was in a sports 2000, so he usually lapped me. Um, but I, I, I don't hold that against him. A um, number of you tonight are members, many of you aren't members, I'll talk to you about this later on, but there are a little membership uh, brochure down at the back and uh, we'd obviously love if the non-members would uh, join up with Brooklyn's and lots and lots of benefits uh, for you uh, when, when you are a member. So without further ado, big hand please for Mike Wilds. Thank you. No, in, in Did have a little accident yesterday. He has hurt his knee, so um, he's going to try and stand for most of the talk. But if he does, um, if he does sit down, we put him a chair here, uh, so you'll, you'll forgive him for sitting down for, for a little bit. Thank you very much, Mike. <laughs> Thank you very much, Harry. Good evening, everybody. <laughs> Fantastic. Do we have any motorsport enthusiasts here? <laughs> this is this is wonderful because now I feel I'm amongst friends. I don't have to worry. I am so nervous at this point, so it's nice to know I'm amongst friends. Um, I saw this earlier on. Uh, I don't know if any of you can see this. Um, Stanley BRM. I'm going to talk about Stanley BRM, and I really didn't need to be remembered <laughs> about Stanley BRM before I'd even got started. But hey-ho, we will talk about that uh, a little later, but I don't know if any of you ever feel, you go somewhere and you feel totally at home. And I do feel totally at home when I come to Brooklands. I'm very, very proud of being a member of the British Racing Drivers Club. Hence, I put the British Racing Drivers Club, well, part of it, badge, on this slide. It meant a lot to me to become a member of this club and it's great that the BRDC ran a 500 mile race here at Brooklands in 1929. The BRDC was formed in 1927 and they ran this 500 mile race here at Brooklands in 1929 and at that time it was the world's fastest uh, ever sports car race. So wonderful association. It just helps me feel very at home and thank you so much uh, to all of you for, for coming and listening to me waffle. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about basically my passion, my love of the sport that I've completed in um, for most of my life. How did it start? It started uh, in Chiswick, in West London, not so far from here. I went to school in Chiswick, and I often used to ride my bicycle along Chiswick High Road, and I was fascinated by a garage in Chiswick High Road, which was called the Checkered Flag. And I would stop, park my bicycle, 
and just peer at these wonderful machines that were in the checker flag. I'm sorry I couldn't get a more up-to-date and in-focus picture, but this is Graham Warner, who owned the checker flag, showing somebody a D-type Jaguar, a very famous one, OKV3, works um, D-type Jaguar. And I was absolutely fascinated by these cars. So much so, I was there so often that they eventually offered me a Saturday job um, washing cars which just fueled my passion, especially as they were running their own racing team. Graham was racing a Lotus Elite called uh, Registration Love One, L-O-V-1. But they ran Formula Junior Geminis, and they said, if you ask your parents, you could come in the transporter down to Brands Hatch next weekend. You can wash the cars between practice and the race. And Chaz Beatty, the mechanic, said to be at uh, the workshop 6 o'clock Saturday morning. We drove to Brands Hatch, and I got out of the truck, and I don't know if you've ever, has anybody ever had a eureka moment? <laughs> I bet you have. <laughs> but this eureka moment was, um, there was a smell. As I got out of the truck, there was a smell, there was an atmosphere, and a noise. I'd never heard racing cars before, and at that, and I swear this is true, that very moment I said, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. I want to be a racing driver. And I was probably 13, 14 at the time. A cartoonist friend of mine did this when he heard about my story in the checker flag, and he did this, and he's quite right. I was. Uh, helping out until I could get a Formula One drive. It only took me uh, God knows how many decades to actually achieve it. I joined the 750 Motor Club in the mid-1960s, and uh, about 1964, I met a man at the London Special Builders Group called Lou Bergonzi. It's him sitting in this little DRW 1172 Special, and I'm standing to the left of the car, wanting to buy this little DRW. And it was 280 pounds, including the trailer. I was probably earning three and sixpence a week at the time, so it seemed to be a fortune. And we agreed that I would buy the car on this day, and this is me, the first time I ever drove a racing car on a racetrack. I can't tell you just how wonderful that experience was. To drive around Silverstone, I'd never been around Silverstone before, and here I was in a car that I hoped to own. My mother and father, bless their hearts, they stood guarantor for a loan. I came up with a deposit, and I spent the next, well, I'm still paying for it now. <laughs> um, so, I hadn't really thought it through. We lived in a flat in a beautiful four-story um, house, and we were on the top floor flat, we had no garage, and Lou delivered the car on a November, very dark, cold November night in 1964. I didn't have anywhere to put it, basically, so I parked it, the trailer and the racing car in the road with a tarpaulin of it, over it, and it uh, just sat out there. And you know, nobody ever touched it. 
wouldn't be there the following morning today, I don't suppose. But that's how I couldn't afford to drive it. So it sat there until May 1965. I did have a go and a sprint and a hill climb just to see uh, what it was like. And eventually, this was me on the grid talking to my brother, um, as you can see quite near the back of the grid. And this was Snetterton in May 1965. I was nervous, much as I am now. And when I got in the car and started up, I'd spoken to people, I said, well, when this chap drops the Union Jack, you drop the clutch and off you go and enjoy the race. Which I did, and that's me in car number 33, having fun with two other guys, and I came from the back of the grid and I finished third. And I couldn't believe it, I came home with a trophy, it was nearly as big as an egg cup. It was absolutely <laughs> fantastic. And I didn't have a tow car, or anything, so we put a tow hitch on the back of my mum's Morris Minor 1000, which wasn't the quickest car anyway, so we had to leave the day before to get to Snetterton because it wouldn't tow more than about 20 miles an hour. So we came home, I saved up some money, went and did a race at Silverstone, which sadly I don't have a picture of, but once I'd saved up for my third race, we went to Silverstone again, um, that second race at Silverstone, I finished second, so things were, were moving forward. And this was the race um, at Silverstone in uh, late May 1965, which gave me my first win. And basically, end of the story, because everything went downhill from there, really. <laughs> but I can't tell you how much fun we were having. After that race at Silverstone, that I'd won, I met a man called Anthony Salmon, and he told me he was the secretary of the British Racing Drivers Club. Now, I had a hero at the time called Sterling Moss, and uh, I'd seen Sterling wearing the badge of the club. So I said to Mr. Salmon, I've just won uh, my third race. Can I join your club, please? Uh, he, was, <laughs> he was very kind to me and patted me on the head and said, uh, do go away, young man, and come back when you're a racing driver. So he was very nice about it, and uh, I then pressed on with my passion and uh, forgot all about wanting to join the BRDC. The first race of my second season at Brands Hatch was when I really found out that motor racing could be dangerous, and it could hurt a little bit. We weren't wearing suit belts in those days, so. I went to the first round of the 1172 Championship at Brands Hatch, and during the race, I was trying to get the lead off a man called, uh, God, what was his name? I've forgotten it. He was driving a Regio, anyway, and it was a beautiful little 1172 car, and uh, he spun. So I thought, great, I've got the lead. So did I lift off? Not a jot thinking that he would spin the car to the infield. He didn't, he held the slide and he came backwards and I tried to miss him and went on to the muddy grass on the outside of the circuit and then hit that muddy bank on the outside because I couldn't get the car stopped from going down the ditch on uh, the bottom of Paddock Hill. That very nicely broke my nose and hit 
me, I hit it so hard, uh, I didn't wake up till the following weekend. Um, from there, the car started to turn over, and at this point, it snapped my pelvis in two. I had a couple of broken arms, and by the time it got to here, I was in a pretty bad way. But luckily, I was in the land of Nod. I didn't know anything about it, which was great. So, this was a huge setback for me because, well, and my family, <laughs> poor dad and mum, had to try and help me get this sorted out. And the 750 Motor Club were great because you make friends, they all try and help. And one guy, Tiny Littler, who was racing um, in Formula Libra and an ex-John Love Cooper, had a coach builder's uh, place in South London and he took the chassis. And when I f eventually woke up, my father, I was in West Hill Hospital in Dartford for a long time. Uh, he used to tow the car in various stages of rebuild and park it in a particular place in the car park. So I was on the first floor ward. I could see how he was getting on rebuilding my car with the help of all these guys. It was absolutely wonderful because stupidly all I wanted to do was get back in the car and go racing again. Note the lovely marshals with their beautiful fluorescent gear and don't, <laughs> don't, uh, don't move the poor patient in case he'd broken his neck. They just hoiked me out and took me off to the hospital, which was great. So, once we rebuilt it, I did do a few more races in the car, but I was in such debt, I had to sell the car, pay off the debts. It was then a case of going begging, and I managed with a guy called Tony Summerson to beg a drive in this little Vixen called a VB1, it had a Hillman Imp engine, and I went motor racing in that. Um, that's Ian Phillips, who was with, I think, Autosport at the time, who went on to be a Formula One team manager and with Eddie Jordan and stuff. Uh, but that was a great, fun little car. Too far. I wanted to stay involved in motorsport seven days of the week. I couldn't get enough of it, so I joined the Firestone Tire and Rubber Company. I wanted to work in their racing division so I could go to international motor races, meet people, and hopefully try and get some drive somewhere. That's me working at Silverstone. I had my beard because after I had hit the dashboard in my DRW, I couldn't shave for months because my face was fairly smashed. I grew a beard and kept it uh, about 20 odd years. So that's Colin Chapman, uh, Jochen Rint, and uh, a guy called Colin, uh, who was another Formula One tire engineer. So I, I was really in the thick of motor racing, which is where I wanted to be. I sadly don't have a picture of me racing in Formula Ford, but while I was at Firestone, I met a man called Sheridan Thin. Sherry was such a lovely man, and he had a Titan Mark IV Formula Ford, and he'd watched me racing. I was, he knew I was trying to get a drive, and he lent me the Formula Ford for a year. I didn't have any money to run it, so I went to the PR department of Firestone and said, would you sponsor me? They laughed and, and uh, saw me out the door. But then I got a phone call from them saying, we might have an idea here. Firestone was sponsoring Ferrari, John Wire in 917s and so on, for tires, and were supplying overalls and jackets. 
And these overalls and jackets were made by a company called Skyjump. They were just about to put a big order in for the following season at the end of 1970. So uh, they said, we'll give you we'll carry on using you and we'll give you a big order, but you have to give sponsorship to Mike Wiles and his Formula Ford. And so that's how I managed to race in 1971 with uh, a bit of um, bribery from Firestone and, and Skyjump, which was very, very kind of them. At this time, I met a man called Jeremy Sumner and I'd been racing against a man called John Cavill. John Cavill is one of my best friends to this very day. And John was racing Formula 4 against me, and we were at Mallory Park. He came up to me. I was on pole position. John was fairly well down the grid. He said, where, where do you break and change down for Gerrards? Now, I don't know if any of you know Mallory Park, but Gerrards is a very, very long, long, long right-hander and a very fast corner. Well, I, I didn't break, I didn't lift off, it was absolutely flat in top gear. And so John didn't believe me and went back to his father. He said, look, uh, I'm not going to make a racing driver. If I have to do this flat, I can't do it. Why don't we help Mike? Jeremy Sumner, on the other hand, had this beautiful old Chevron B6 with a BMW engine in it. And this car basically changed my life because I kept on at Jeremy, oh, please let me drive your Chevron, please let me drive your Chevron. And he lived close to here in uh, Weybridge. Eventually he said, okay, you can do a Formula Libre race at Brands Hatch. It's called the Royal Tunbridge Wells Trophy. I will do the GT race. Mike, you can do the Formula Libre race. It'll be all single seaters. You won't stand a chance. But if you want to drive it, you can drive it. But if you crash it or damage it, you have to pay for it. Yes, not a problem, said I. <laughs> not having two halfpennies to rub together. So anyway, I, I entered this race and uh, I qualified midfield in amongst these single-seaters. I was the only GT car. But it rained just before the race. And for some reason, I love racing in the rain. I love that feeling of a car sliding and trying to look for the grip and get maximum performance out of it. And I won the Tunbridge Wells Trophy in the Chevron. And Jeremy Sumner after came up to said, I have to help you. It just so coincided with John Cavill and his father saying, why don't we buy Mike a Formula 3 car? But we don't have the running costs. So... This little Chevron, now I was testing that Ligier a couple of years ago at Silverstone and I was parked next to this little Chevron in the garage. And I went up to the chap, I said, oh, one of these changed my life. And he said, really? I said, yes, it was owned by a man called Jeremy Sumner and he let me drive it and it led to me becoming a professional racing driver. He said, well, that's very strange. This is Jeremy Sumner's car. <laughs> and it was, and I can't tell you, I was quite emotional about it. It put a lump in my throat. I had to sit in it because Jeremy Sumner came up with the running costs for the Formula 3 car, but on the understanding that I gave up work at Firestone I'm, and I became a professional racing driver and concentrated 100% on my racing. I mean, how cool is that? 
how cool is that? So I had to go back, my dear wife, Chrissy, who was, who was alive then, um, we wanted a family, and I said, I've got a nice job at Firestone, but I've always wanted to be a racing driver. Um, do you mind if I go and be a racing driver? And she was 100% uh, behind it for me, and uh, that car allowed me to become a professional racing driver. So, John and Jack Cavill bought this beautiful Ensign LNF3 in 1972. You can see I'm wearing a white crash helmet, and that's jumping the mountain at Cadwell Park uh, in one of my first races in British Formula 3. What a beautiful car. I still think the little Ensign was one of the prettiest of the racing cars ever. Um, and it was great in the 1970s in this country. You could do three championships. I mean, if you look at a British Formula 3 championship race now, yeah, there's a fair grid, but there were three championships and there was almost 100 cars racing. So you had to do heats, you qualified in practice for your grid position in a heat, then you had to go from that heat into a final, and by the time you got to the final 30 cars on the grid of the final, the whole grid there, um, lap times didn't vary more than a couple of tenths, so it's very, very competitive. Absolutely brilliant motor racing. But my wife said, the crash helmet's too plain. I see Graham Hill, he's got the London Writing Club round his crash helmet. I'm going to design you a crash helmet. So I said, that's great, thank you very much. And she came up with this idea. Now bless her, Chrissy always wanted yellow cars. The reason was because when she went to the supermarket, she could never find her car. <laughs> so therefore, there were only one or two yellow ones, so she didn't really have to look too far to get her car. So the crash helmet had to be yellow. She liked yellow, and she liked diamonds, bless her. Um, uh, didn't buy her too many, sadly, but... Um, she came up with that design, and I've worn that helmet design in every race that I've done since 1972. And my sons, when they started racing, they wore the same design as well. So, so she was absolutely right. It's good to have a signature, because a lot of people, not many, but some people come up and say, oh, I know you, you're Mike Wilds, because of the crash helmet. And there's that beautiful car again. That was at Monaco in 1973. I was now desperately keen to progress towards my ultimate goal, which had to be to race in Formula One. So the natural progression from Formula Three to Formula One was to do Formula Three, Formula Two, and Formula One. Formula Two was brilliant because a lot of the Grand Prix drivers were racing in Formula Two as well as Formula One. So that was my uh, ambition. It didn't quite go that way, because this is myself, still with my beard, and my dear friend Colin Bennett. Um, the sponsors we had at the time, called Dempster Developments, who were providing the running costs for Jack Cavill's uh, Ensign, uh, I said I did a budget for Formula 2, but most of the races were in Europe. And they said, no, we, we want to race in the UK mostly. So it was decided that we would uh, 
race in Formula 5000. So you had a five litre stock block Chevrolet, modified engine, and uh, the team bought a Formula One, a new Formula One March 741 chassis. And Colin and I engineered a Chevrolet V8 uh, into the back of it. Not particularly easy, and sadly, not particularly successful initially. It was a brute of a car. Uh, I'd raced Formula 3 with 120, 130 brake horsepower, very light, very nimble, and here I was with a cast iron block Chevrolet 500 horsepower engine in the back of a single seater. Christ, it was good. It was so good. I can't tell you how much I love power in racing cars. And this was my first taste of driving something where there was something in Formula One when I was working at Firestone that drivers used to talk about tire vibration. I don't know if you've ever heard about it, but we were running 20, 21 inch wide rear tires to get the grip. The aero wasn't particularly good, so we were looking to get a lot of grip out of the tires. The uh, extra power you have with these very, very wide tires, you could squeeze the power on in the middle of a corner. The car would start to spin its wheels under power, but it was also sliding laterally. So you were getting into an oversteer situation with the wheels spinning one way and the tires sliding the other. And it set up a wave across the top of the tread. And this wave was, was absolutely fantastic because you could, you don't want to slide too much because you're wasting time and you want to get the power on to fire yourself out to the next corner. So you could gauge the amount of vibration that gave you the best traction and to get the speed out of the corner. And it was, I'd never felt it before. As soon as I drove this 5,000 car, it hurt your chest. The vibration hurt your chest. The more you pushed the throttle down, it was, it was very low frequency vibration and you couldn't see the instruments. And I was so chuffed to get it because all these Formula One drivers had been telling me about it and now I was actually getting this feeling. So, Formula 5000 was a really good stepping stone to Formula One, but it wasn't really recognized as such at the time. This is me testing the car once we finished building it at Silverstone. Um, it really was a mighty car, the, by far the fastest thing I'd ever driven at the time. And my first race was at the Race of Champions meeting at Brands Hatch in 1974. We had a 5,000 race on the Saturday, and then the top five, I think, who finished in that 5,000 race were offered a place on the grid for the uh, Race of Champions on the Sunday. Well, I qualified 10th or 11th, hadn't done very well. But in the race, I really started, because they were quite long races, I really started to get in the car. And I was running fourth, and I caught one of my heroes, a man called Brian Redman, who was running third. And uh, in fact, sorry, he was running second. I overtook Ian Ashley to get third, and I caught Brian Redman. I thought, I can't believe this. There's Brian Redman in a beautiful Lola T332. Um, 
and being inexperienced, I was lunging him down into the corners and overtaking him, and he'd just drive past me on the way out of the corner and wave and serenely carry on while I was driving my backside off, making every mistake under the sun. But it was a great learning curve for me. And by the end of the race, I'd beaten Brian and come second to Peter Gethin, uh, who was in a work Chevron B24, which meant I was going to get a race in the race of champions on the Sunday. So I'd just won £4,000 for coming second in this European championship round and went into the race of champions on the Sunday, which, if some of the older menders might remember, it was a tremendously wet race. And Jackie Ix got a bit of fame by driving around the outside. I think it was Nicky Lauder in the Ferrari. He drove round him, round Paddock, in the wet to take the lead. It was um, horrendous. My race didn't last very long. I sadly um, went round the outside of Teddy Pellet at the start at Druids in the wet. He spun, hit me, put me in the wall, and the repairs cost me about £4,010, so I didn't make <laughs> much profit last weekend. But things did get better. Um, that's me. I put the car on pole position at Brands Hatch for another round at, at 5,000, so I'm in front of all the people I thought I shouldn't be. Peter Gethin, David Hobbs, Brian Redmond, Teddy Pillette, and there's me leaving. I love leaving black lines. Used to, we used to do the start in second gear, so you'd pop the old girl in second gear, give it about 7,000 revs, and just nicely drop the clutch, and you could just leave black lines all the way up towards Paddock Bend. It was lovely. So I led that race for a while, and I think this is probably one of the best races I ever drove, because I finished sixth, because I led the race for half of it, um, and then started to lose the front brakes. So I only had rear brakes, the pedal was going almost to the floor, and then the throttle stuck wide open. And so in the end, I was driving with no brakes, a throttle that was stuck wide open, so I was driving it on the kill switch on the steering wheel, and I still finished sixth because I was leading the European Championship at this stage. Uh, so I, I reckon it was one of my best ever drives, even though I didn't get a result. I then had a massive crash at Thruxton in the Formula 5000. Um, they weren't particularly safe cars, and I didn't let go of the steering wheel quick enough in the accident, and it snapped my, my left wrist. And that week, I'd been offered uh, a works drive in the Formula 1 March. Uh, Hans Stuck had broken his wrist at Monaco the week before, and so I was offered the replacement. Uh, to be a replacement driver. Sadly, I, I'd broken my wrist as well the week, so I, I couldn't do it. But Mo Nunn came up and said, well, would you like to drive the Ensign in the Italian Grand Prix? Um, Vern Schupen had left the team, so I went and drove it. Sadly, the car really wasn't very good. Um, the basic car was fine, but it had a problem with the fuel system. Every time I loaded the car to the left, it dropped fuel pressure, and therefore the engine uh, lost power, and I didn't qualify. The man doing the tyre temperatures is a man called Nigel Bennett, who went on to work with Lotus, uh, Lola, Lotus, and ev en ev ended up uh, 
being chief designer for Penske, he designed a lot of the good um, Indy cars that won uh, in the USA. So Nigel was a good mate. We actually owned a boat together for a number of years. Um, so I didn't qualify there. I didn't qualify in Austria, in Canada, and uh, I was getting really fed up. And I said to, to Mo, really, it's pointless to do this. It was so competitive. There were 30, 32 cars for 25 places on the grid. So we went to America after Canada, and there was a week where Mo, bless his heart, redesigned the whole fuel system of the car. And this is me going out of the pit lane at Watkins Glen. It's very strange. Your mind plays games with you. I was sitting in the pit lane, and I had one set of good tires left. I, the team, we didn't get qualifying tires, so my back was to the wall anyway, so I had to try and qualify and race tires. And I suddenly realized I was sitting in the car, looking down towards the first right-hander at Watkins Glen, and it was a beautiful grandstand on the left, and I was thinking to myself, it'd be nice to watch the race from there. And I'd got in this mindset that I wasn't going to be in this motor race. Uh, because of the previous uh, non-qualification. And I can tell you, when I drove that car out of that pit lane, I have never, ever been so determined to, to get on the grid in my life. Mo had cured this fuel pressure problem, and these are the practice times and the grid for that race, and I was never last, never last in any of the practice sessions, and I actually managed to do a time that got me on the grid. I can't tell you what that meant to me. To be sitting with the Nicky Lauders of this world, the James Hunts, the Fittipaldis, Denny Holmes, Jacques Lafitte, all these, all my heroes, especially Ronnie Peterson, who I admired greatly, he was just uh, one place in front of me on the grid. I was sitting on the grid looking at Ronnie Peterson in a JPS Lotus 72. It was surreal, absolutely surreal. So when the man lifted the flag to start the race, I was really up for it. And the engine stopped. <laughs> Just as he dropped the flag, it, it was absolutely Murphy's Law. I lost fuel pressure. The pressure relief valve on the, it ran a Cosworth uh, DFV three-liter engine, and the pressure relief valve on the engine failed. The engine would run as long as I hardly touched the throttle. If I touched the throttle, the pressure just went down to zero. So I think I, they lapped me five or six times before I managed to get the car into the pit lane. I was determined to get it to the pit lane and do a Grand Prix. It took forever to find a spare pressure relief valve. Monan fitted it, and I went out. I'd lost nine laps. So I wouldn't be classified, but he said, just go out, get the experience. And I had a wonderful time, and I had a lovely dice with a wonderful man called Chris Amon, who was driving for BRM. And when we came home, I was chatting with 
James and his wife, and we were having fun doing slot car races. But at that time, I was contacted by a man called Louis Stanley. <laughs> I don't know if I can go on. <laughs> um, Louis was uh, talking to me and saying, do you have a drive for next year? I see you dicing with my man, uh, Chris Amon. Uh, and I said, no, I don't have a drive. He said, well, come and see me in the Dorchester. He had a suite in the Dorchester that was specifically his 24-7, 365 days a year. God knows what it cost his wife. I mean, it was uh, unbelievable. He was spending her money like mad. So it was a very strange... I lived in Chiswick, not very far, to go to um, Park Lane, to the Dorchester, and we had several meetings, primarily several meetings because he was never in the meeting. Uh, he would be talking to me about wow, how wonderful the new BRM P201 is going to be, running Stanley BRM. Um, I have to go. I won't be long. So he'd go and I'd sit there for about an hour and 30 minutes and he didn't come back and eventually he did come back and we carry on and right, I have to go now, come back tomorrow. So I was going backwards and forwards to the Dorchester for several days. Um, the upshot was he wanted me to drive, uh, but he wouldn't pay me. And I said, well, I do have uh, a wife, and uh, Chrissy was pregnant with our first child, Michael, at the time. And I said, I do need to earn a living. He said, well, y you can drive for us. We'll take you to Argentina and Brazil, for the f uh, and, but you have to pay, get your own wages, um, which was impossible. Uh, I just so I said I can't, I can't do it. Um, let me think about it and see what I can come up with. And I went back and spoke to Jeremy Sumner and some of the people who helped me in Formula Three, and they agreed to pay me sixty pounds a week uh, to keep my head above water, uh, so I could go and drive for BRM. Big mistake. But anyway, so I go to the BRM saga. And my God, was it a saga. So I was invited to Snetterton to test a BRM P160, and uh, it went very well. Chris Amon was there on the same day, and he was driving the P201. I drove the P160, which I have to say is probably one of the nicest racing cars I've ever driven. Beautiful handling machine. But the engine, compared to the Cosworth V8 that I've been driving, was sadly lacking. Um, it made the most lovely noise and had no torque and it felt as though I was driving a car with 350 brake horsepower. So when Chris had to leave, I was then put in the BRM P201, uh, which again handled very well and Mike Pill, this was a Tony Southgate uh, car who I had lunch with, really lovely guy. The P201 was um, Mike my memory's going. Who drove the... Mike Pilbeam. Thank you very much. It's age. Um, Mike Pilbeam car. It was a, a great car. But on about my third or fourth lap, we were revving it to about 12,000 RPM, and uh, it put two rods out of the block um, when I was just driving past the pits. So I was pulling power, and it just went bang. 
So everybody seemed to say, oh, don't worry, I've got plenty of engines, not a problem, see you in Buenos Aires, and I got the itinerary, and I left for Argentina in 1975, January the 7th, on my birthday, said goodbye to Chrissy, and uh, she didn't really want to leave her because she was heavily pregnant at the time, and uh, disappeared for two weeks to do the South American Grand Prix in Argentina and Brazil. So this was the P201. We eventually, I ran with this wing in Argentina for a while. Um, a very nice gentleman sent this to this meeting for me to sign. Um, so I have signed it, and I'll tell you what I've written on the back in a while. <laughs> I, uh, I didn't get on very well with the BRM. I, I qualified at the back purely because it, it didn't seem to have any power. And during the race, the, um, this in fact is Brazil, in Argentina, it had a very complicated dry sump pump system to pump oil around the engine, scavenge the engine on a deaerating unit and so on. Anyway, that packed up. I'm f going flat out down the straight and uh, all the temperatures and pressures are fine. Looked in the mirror, all I could see were flames. And what had happened, the scavenge side of the dry sump pump had packed up, so it was pumping oil into the engine. None was being taken out, so the engine just burst all its seals and didn't, uh, didn't do it much good at all. So that was the end of the Argentinian Grand Prix, and in the Brazilian Grand Prix, again, Oh, and I forgot to say, when I got to Argentina, I looked at the engine that I was going to be using. It was the engine that I'd blown up at Snetterton with the block welded, um, which sometimes it can be okay, but um, I want, it, it didn't uh, bode well. Um, I then got back to England and said, look, this is ridiculous. I wanted to do well. The thing that's letting us down is the engine. Can we not get a Ford DFV engine in the back of a 201? Because we'll probably get a guaranteed 500 horsepower and it will be reliable. He fired me on the spot. <laughs> so I've written on the back of that front wing, which I used in Argentina in 1975, um, maybe we should try another engine. <laughs> and signed it. So this, my cartoon friend, again, uh, that was uh, Mr. Stanley's reaction to me suggesting that we try a Ford DFE engine. So basically, that was the end of my uh, driving of in World Championship Formula One uh, with BRM or any other team. There were no, no other spaces available, sadly. I did some test driving for John Surtees, which was good fun on occasion. Um, lovely man, quite difficult to work for. However, I went to Shelsley Walsh last year for classic nostalgia, and some very kind uh, gentleman put me in uh, a P160 again. And it was much as I remember the BRM. Uh, I went away from the line at Shelsley Walsh. It ran on about 10 cylinders. Uh, I got halfway up. I probably got 11 cylinders. And just as I got to the finish line, it came on 12. <laughs> hey-ho. It was still a nice, a nice experience. 
So that was the end of Formula One for me. Uh, am I boring you yet? <laughs> uh, that was the end of Formula One for me. And uh, when I was 20, I always have, because I love this man. And he was so nice to me. I, that was the day I met him when I was eight. Uh, yes, I was 20. Uh, we were mates. And I, I just always love to remember him. So, I was back in the mode of begging. Begging for drives. I'd drive anything. Just please let me go motor racing. So doing this, I found out that motor racing can be even more dangerous. It could possibly even try to kill you. So, I scrounged a drive in something called a Lola T280, which was an inter-series car. It had the lovely Cosworth V8 3D DFE engine in the back with different cams to, for sports car racing. But it was still very quick, and uh, I was leading a, a, a race, a Thunder Sports race at Donington Park, and my dear friend Ray Malloch uh, was running the car, and he said... Um, well, I said I could smell petrol. I was getting strapped in to do the start of the race. I said, strong smell of petrol, Ray. Yes, he said, not to worry. He's, when the tank's full, because it was a long race, the tanks are full. And he said, if you look over here, the plate, there are plates on the top of the uh, fuel system, which have rubber gaskets. And it's where they put the bag tanks in, and then they, it's all bolted up and everything's wonderful. But I could see fuel seeping from the gasket on one of the tanks, because you're sitting in tanks both sides of you. And he said, uh, the car only does four, four miles to the gallon, do two laps, and that won't be a problem anymore. So I go away from the start, I'm leading the race, and everything's great. I've got a, a man in a Can-Am car who's giving me a tough time from behind, and this smell of petrol is getting stronger. Ray said it would be all right, everything's fine. The smell is getting stronger and stronger. And on the 13th lap, it went bang. It had a fuel leak, but not the one Ray was talking about. Uh, there happened, somehow, one of the bag tanks had got a nick in it, a split, and was leaking fuel outside of the bag tank into the monocoque. And eventually, when I put the brakes on for Redgate Corner, obviously the brakes get very hot, they glow. Some of the fuel hit the left front brake, came back into the tank and exploded. At this point, I'm probably doing 130, 140 miles an hour, thinking, I have a problem. <laughs> because I'm not going to get out now. I have to slow this car down. It's really weird what goes through your mind when you think you're going to die. And I honestly, this is the only time I've ever thought I would die in a racing car. Um, the biggest thing that came across here for me were just three words. Don't breathe in. And I just didn't take a breath. I didn't do it. The pain of the fire, the heat, I can't tell you how painful it was. Uh, but I had to get it slowed down to get away from it, which meant I was in here. Again, I was still, if you breathe in, 
you're going to scorch your lungs and it's going to kill you. So I didn't, I tried not to breathe, try not to breathe, but get away from it. And everything I was touching to get away from it was melting. It was just a nightmare, absolute nightmare. And I thought, well, this is how somebody dies. But uh, I did get out and I rolled around. I felt I was totally on fire and the marshals came and sorted me out. Um, that was my helmet afterwards. Um, and it was the right decision because I'm still here. Um, it did put me in hospital for a while, but luckily I always wear good fireproof clothing, good underwear, very sexy long johns that are fireproof, polo neck shirt that's fireproof, balaclava. So the ambient heat and the external part of the uh, race suit caught fire, but it, the heat didn't go through so badly. I got one very deep burn here, which still has a scar, but it was really big. This was in 1980-something, and, and it's gradually got smaller and smaller. It's about the size of a 50p piece now. But the rest of it just killed the top layer of my skin, so the skin just fell off and carried on racing. But I will now never, ever drive a racing car if I can smell petrol. I've, I've given people their money back when they've paid me to drive a Nissan Group C in a historic race at uh, Donington. I could smell petrol. I said, I don't want to drive it. And I went home and I didn't drive it. It frightened me that much. And it frightens me so much that even at home, I do. <laughs> Just in case the lawnmower catches fire, um, I don't like taking any chances now when driving anything. <laughs> so, I've started driving sports cars, and then I get a phone call from my very dear friend uh, who was running the Lola that caught fire, Ray Malik. Ray was telling me that the Curiacos were coming back to sports car racing to do the Le Mans 24-hour races, would I like to be involved? Uh, I think it took mm, slightly more than two and a half milliseconds for me to agree. And uh, Ray built uh, Anikos on, on the basis of a, of a Lola chassis uh, initially until we built our own cars. Um, but that was the initial car. It was a beautiful, small, tiny front end um, car. We ran 13-inch wheels because we wanted to be very quick at this, uh, down the straight at Le Mans. This was at Monza in our first race. We came second in the Group C2 class, which was, was pretty good. I think we, we could have won it had, um, sadly, the fuel metering unit for the first part of the race was left on rich. So we'd used up quite a lot of the allocation of our fuel. So we had to um, cut down on our RPM to finish the race, and we dropped to second place, but still a good start. But this little car, we, we did Silverstone, Monza, um, and then we, being the most experienced driver in the car, they said, um, Mike, uh, you, you drive first, because we hadn't actually been able to do a top speed run in the car. We could get about 180 miles an hour down towards Stowe, at um, Silverstone, but we couldn't go any faster. So this will be the first time we would see what the top speed was of the car. 
So I set off, I did an installation lap, everything was good, right, off you go. Um, and we, we were using 8,000 RPM on a Cosworth V8 in the car. And Ray worked out the gearing, the tire growth. We should be doing 200 miles an hour at about 8,000 RPM. So I set off and uh, warmed the car up for one more lap, and then I went flat down uh, the Morsan Strait. Didn't have chicanes in those days, which was just wonderful. You just sit there for three and a half miles, absolutely flat to the floor. So I go through the gears, 8,000 in fourth, 8,000 uh, in fifth, and I thought, crumbs, I'm doing 200 miles an hour. This is awesome, and then it went 8.2. Eight, four. This little car did 217 miles an hour, which I think is absolutely awesome. And I, I kid you not, I could take my hand off the steering wheel. It was so stable. I love this little car. I drove for them for four years, and uh, every time I got in it, it was like putting on a, a comfy pair of slippers, you know? You get in, you feel at home. You love driving the car. And... Uh, Sadly, we retired at Le Mans, but we went on, we raced uh, in 84 and 85, I think we finished second in the C2 World Championship. We decided we needed some works support, and we got some work support from Austin Rover, would you believe? The 6R4 rally engine appeared to be a good basis that we could make an endurance race engine out of it. Um, we didn't think so after the first test. We went to Alton Park, did five laps, and it blew up, which wasn't a good start. We gave the engines to Swindon, uh, race engines, and uh, we changed all the, the cam belts. And we started running the car. Now, it was only giving about 450, 460 brake horsepower. But what it did give us was a, a mile per gallon usage advantage over the Cosworths. So this was the only world championship I managed to be involved with. We, we won the, the Group C2 Team World Championship in 1986 in this car using a little V6, 6R4 engine, and it was absolutely brilliant. Um, one of the happiest times of my career, really, the four years with the Curicos. Um, Hugh McCaig, who ran the team, it was run very professionally, everything done spot on. But my God, when we left the circuit, did we have some parties. Absolutely brilliant. I've, if I'm honest, I've never been the fastest racing driver in the world. But I've tried to be versatile. I, I can be quite quick in anything. Um, which has helped me stay in the business uh, for a fair amount of time. Driving things like this. <laughs> when, when you're begging for drives and somebody says, well, would you like to drive this uh, Jaguar that's fitted with a Can-Am V8, but it's actually next door to your, to your left knee? Um, it was very noisy. I now suffer with tinnitus terribly, and I wonder why. Um, it was very, very hot. Um, but it was a racing car, and I wanted to, to go and drive racing cars. The Ligier that I was uh, testing for a team uh, looks more like a speedboat, doesn't it? 
I love it. However, I didn't particularly like the car. This was not very many years ago. Now, as a German engineer once told me when I raced a, a, a Porsche Cup car, you're very old school, Mike. And I am. I like a car that talks to me. This car was so amazing with the amount of aero and ground effect and so on. I could do, uh, if some of you know a corner, a section of corners at Spa called Eau Rouge and Radillion, um, with that car I could do it without lifting. I could have been eating a sandwich. Uh, it didn't talk to you at all. I had no idea how close I was to having an accident. There was, the car didn't talk to me whatsoever. Um, so I stopped driving it because it wasn't me. I like a car that I can work with. It talks to me and uh, it didn't. It was just unbelievably fast but had no character. This was um, a race against, in Formula One, a, a, a man called Tom Price who was a lovely man. Uh, and in Argentina and Brazil, I raced against uh, Tom in the BRM. Or the, well, I drove against him. I wasn't anywhere near him in, in the race. But this was the DN3B that Tom was driving in 1975. And I drove it in the, um, the British Formula One Championship, which was uh, great fun. Got lots of tyre vibration from that car as well. I drove uh, lots of sports cars. This is, this is a Lola T286. Uh, quite similar to the 280 that caught fire, but this one had a what's called a DFL, so it was uh, an enlarged Cosworth V8, and that was at Thruxton, and I have to say that thing round Thruxton made my neck ache, because it's a big, long, long right-hand corner circuit, and uh, it just tore most of my right-hand neck muscles. Can-Am, loved driving Lola T530 Can-Am cars. Again, I love power. I love cars that have more power than handling. They have character. Modern cars, that's why I just basically race historic cars now, because they have character. They talk to me, and I know where I stand or sit when I'm, when I'm driving them. Touring cars, this I used to do uh, something called brick car, and I love this little, it's X-Works BMW 320i. The reason I love this picture is that you're not coming off any curbs or anything, but it just pops itself up onto two wheels. It had such a nice grip level. Uh, I never realised it popped up on two wheels until the person <laughs> sent me this, uh, this picture, but it's, uh, it's lovely. So now... This is the sort of car I love to race. Um, I raced this car in 2008. It's a Porsche 962 uh, that was run by Richard Lloyd Racing. And it has ground effect. It has a flat six twin turbo engine. It has a beautiful little silver knob inside the cockpit that if you turn it, you can make it go from 800 horsepower to 1,000 horsepower. Um, and I was always banned from ever touching it. But it was nice to know that if I needed to get by somebody, I could always do it and put it back until they put cameras in the car. Uh, I could get away with it. Um, but they are stun stunning cars. I, I love these. Uh, and I've 
I've driven lots of them. I've been lucky enough to drive lots and lots of them. This was a, a mighty machine. It was Jackie Stewart's Lola T260. Uh, 8.1 litre Renault V8 engine, 910 brake horsepower, only revved to 5,800 RPM. Uh, I won a race at Nürburgring in a similar car, uh, and I never took it out of top gear because it had so much torque, it would pull a house down. So I thought, well, why bother to change gear? So I just left it in top gear and won the race by miles. This car hurt me, sadly. I love this car. Um, it's Nick Mason's uh, ex Gilles Villeneuve Ferrari uh, 312 T3. And that's at Goodwood. Uh, I'd driven it quite a few times for Nick, just in demonstrations. We didn't uh, race it. Um, but something broke on the back suspension uh, on me at Goodwood in, a, in the early 1990s. And uh, it went off the circuit and hit something very hard, which uh, severed my heels, uh, broke both my ankles, broke both my legs, and put me in a wheelchair for 10 months. But luckily, Ferrari rebuilt it, and Carlos Reutemann drove it uh, a year or so later. But um, magnificent machine. Um, still not quite sure what broke at the back, but we think um, it was either a wishbone or uh, something along those lines which just made the car suddenly turn left. When I was working at Firestone in 1966, I was working on this car. It's a Ferrari P3 and it was driven by Lorenzo Bandini and a, and a British gentleman called Mike Parks. And they won the 1000 Ks in 1966 at Spa. And I mean, to me, the car is priceless. It's one of the most beautiful looking cars ever. And it was bought by a man called Harry Leventis. Uh, I think he did sell it on. Uh, I think he could have bought America with what he sold it for. Um, but he said, had I ever driven one? And I said, no. And to be at Spa and drive that car that I saw win the 1,000 Ks, again, was very emotional to be allowed have the privilege uh, of driving such a car. It was wonderful, the noise, everything. You could see why it was such a quick car uh, in its heyday. This was an interesting car. You remember the Jaguar with the Can-Am engine in? Well, that was owned by a friend of mine called Tony Hazelwood, but he then bought this Williams FW07C from the factory. And it was for something called the British Open. They were going to do a Formula Libra series, but a little bit more prestigious, hopefully. Um, so you could have a Formula One car, but you weren't restricted to three litre. So Tony had the engine um, taken out to nearly four litre, four litres by Brian Hart. And we went to the first round of this championship with... Uh, uh, at Alton Park, and I got pole position, I won the race and got fastest lap. It was a sensational car, but 65 laps around Alton Park in that, when I got out, I felt 110 years old. 
I, it did, did make me work hard, but what a wonderful car. I think probably one of the best racing cars I'd ever driven. You remember my wife, Chrissy, designing my crash helmet, black diamonds on a yellow background. Well, a friend of mine, Dave Summers, bless his heart, um, let me race this Ferrari uh, 458 um, with my son, Anthony. And we won our class in the Brick Car Championship in um, about 2016. And because I'd done 50 years of racing, Dave very kindly painted it in my, my uh, first wife's colours. So it was, again, quite emotional to uh, win races in our helmet colours, and especially to do it with my son. And the nice thing about winning a championship in a Ferrari, you get invited to Ferrari, which is lovely. You get invited to a dinner, you, they present you with another trophy for winning a championship in a Ferrari. And uh, as I say, to stand up there and do that in Maranello at Ferrari was uh, very special to do it with my son. Flying. Who loves flying? Some? I, I love flying. I love flying. This, um, I was always nervous that I wasn't going to be able to earn money as a racing driver for the rest of my life. So I thought I needed another profession. So I took all the exams and did the flying and became a helicopter instructor. And uh, that was a man called Dave Richards' helicopter um, from ProDrive. Um, I bought it off him and sold it to another gentleman, um, which allowed me to buy a Porsche. <laughs> with the commission, which was great. Um, but I, I, that was taken down in Marseille at Eurocopter, and I flew it back up to, uh, to High Wycombe uh, in Buckinghamshire. Beautiful machine. I, I really do love flying. This is me driving the... Um, the works Porsche GT3 cup car. But again, yes, it was so fast. It was amazing. But I, they said, do you want to be the oldest man ever to race in Porsche Carrera Cup? So I said, yeah, give it a go. Um, <laughs> but I don't want to be last. Uh, and luckily, I wasn't. I qualified 14th, one and a half seconds off pole, which I mean is a long way. But I thought uh, then, when I was 72, I thought it wasn't too bad. And I, and I finished 14th and uh, had fun, but would I do it again? That car, I was going down to a corner at Brands Hatch, down to Hawthorns, 160 miles an hour, and I'm braking at 80 metres. And I'm thinking, this is very impressive, very impressive until I go back to Frank, the German engineer who called me old school. Um, he said, uh, what do you think of the brakes, Mike? So I said, the brakes are awesome. Oh, I'm not touching them to 80 meters. He said, yeah, I see on the computer here. You break 80 meters. That's where we break in the wet. <laughs> OK, OK, OK. I'm an old man. So, literally, the works guys were not touching the brake pedal till 45 metres. 
45 metres at 160 miles an hour. I said, Frank, how? You, it can't be done you, because the car will be in the corner. Yeah, you do the first half of the corner with your foot on the brakes. Now, to me, every bone in my body says, if I put the brakes on 100% at 45 metres and turn in, what's going to happen? The back end's going to come round and I'm going to go off. And I found it so different. I probably got it down to 60 metres. But even then, I'm having to turn the car in. The amazing G-forces, they are awesome. But did I like it? No. Because when, it, when I locked a wheel, the only way I knew it had locked a wheel was because a little light on the dashboard said, Mike, you've locked a wheel. <laughs> it's, so I wouldn't do it again. Now, the youngsters that drive them probably drive most of their life on video games, I don't know, but this just was not for me. Uh, as Frank said, I'm too old school. The love of my life, apart from my wife Penny, <laughs> this is the love of my life. Um, I've been fortunate for the last two years to drive for an Italian collector called Rainer Becker. And this is the Porsche 956 that finished third at Le Mans in 1983 driven by another legend, Mario Andretti, his son Michael, and Philip Alio. I, that picture was taken in September last year. So I was 76 then, I'm 77 now. It's one of the best photographs anybody in 57 years has taken of me in a racing car, I think, because the sun hadn't quite gone down below the horizon. so. It's getting dark, but the sun has just uh, illuminated the cockpit, which I think is lovely, which is why I put this picture on the cover of my book, which is available here for sale, um, <laughs> if anybody's interested. Um, during during uh, COVID, uh, a lot of my friends uh, said that I should write a book because, I mean, I've I'm just skimmed the surface. Uh, I've had so many stories. And a lot of what I haven't told you is obviously in the book. Um, I'm really proud of it. I have huge thanks to Guy Loveridge, who is here tonight to publish it for me, and another dear friend, Jeff Thomas, for, for helping me write it, because as an author, I'm a pretty good racing driver, really. Um, but Jeff kept me on the straight and narrow, and uh, I shall be forever grateful. And thanks to my wife, Penny, because I disappeared into my little office upstairs for days on end, trying to, uh, to write my first ever book. Um, but I am proud of it, and uh, thank goodness it's, it's, uh, it was out just before Christmas. And, we, we've nearly sold out of them, which is, is amazing. So yes, I have been racing uh, this long. Um, I hope you enjoyed my waffle. Uh, thank you very much for listening to me.
Well, th thank you, Mike. We've, we've all in this room, we've all been to a lot of talks, but believe me, that's right from the top drawer. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree? One of the, the one of the best ever. Absolutely fantastic. Brilliant. Had everything, all the history, the bit of humour, marvellous talk. Thank you. Um, obviously, as Mike says, there's a lot in his career he hasn't covered, but we have a few minutes for questions. Does anybody have a question they would like to ask Mike? Mike, you've wowed them. We've got one here in the front row. Mike, thanks very much. Fantastic evening. I, I think Thank you're you. maybe the British uh, Mario Andretti. Um, <laughs> you mentioned Tony Hazelwood, and uh, I, I guess you were part of the, the Wickham mob with Jerry and... Um, yes, even I raced a lawnmower. Yes, and I, I provided the transmissions to Jerry and Tony for all their bits and pieces that they built in the garden machinery business. Great stuff. Yeah. How, is Tony still with us? He, the last time I saw him, I went to see him. Uh, he was very, he was bedridden and not very well at all. Oh dear. Thanks, But Mark. I think that's the same state now. Bless him. Uh, Mike, did you ever race on the Nordschleife? Nürburgring. You mentioned the Nürburgring. Was that the Grand Prix circuit? Yes, uh, it was the Grand Prix circuit. The reason that I didn't race at um, the Nordschleife, I went there in 1974 as a test driver for John Surtees. Bless his heart, uh, Jochen Mass took me round um, to teach me the circuit for a couple of days before the Formula One car arrived. And um, when Jochen took me, I didn't really open my eyes because I was absolutely scared to death um, because I had no idea where I was going. And he was going flat out, yeah, we do this, we jump to here and we do this. Whoa, no, I can't do this. So the first car I ever drove around the Nordschleife really was a Formula One. And I honestly thought that I can't do this. It was scary. I should have started in a little one litre saloon car or something. To drive there in a Formula One, I thought, I don't want to do this. So I walked away from the circuit. I then raced sports cars on it. I love it to bits. Oh, so you, you, have, you have done a race? Yeah, yeah, then, but yeah. No, nothing. Not a top echelon. Top level, yeah. No. No, it's a scary, scary circuit. All right. Anybody else got any questions for Mike? Um, got a question at the back? You want me to bring the mic down? Um, thanks for your kind words to your publisher, Mike. Um, <laughs> There was a lunch we had when we were putting this together and you told a story about a Kyriakos and a level crossing. Please tell that story again now. Yeah. Well, if you buy my book, it's in, <laughs> actually, actually in the book. Um, we, we, always, we always had lots of fun. Um, we went to Le Mans. Hugh McKay, wonderful man. When you're running two cars at Le Mans, there are a lot of mechanics team managers, drivers. It's very expensive to put all these people in a hotel. So Hugh rented a chateau, as you do. It was about 20 miles away from the circuit, and it was um, at a place called beaumont sur -Sarth. And the old boy who had the chateau, it was getting quite dilapidated, so he would rent it out to try and get some money in to, to keep the chateau going. And we used to drive back after a day's practice and uh, go to a local hostelry in the village and then 
go back to the chateau. Now, between the village and the chateau was a railway line. And this railway line had a crossing, level crossing, but it was not gated. And so you would come up to it and you'd have a good look and drive on. Hugh had just bought a new Bentley Turbo R, which were all the rage at that time in the 80s. And uh, I was sitting in the back with, I can't remember, David Leslie and a few of the other guys. For some reason, I'm quite good at mimicking things, noises and accents and so on. So Hugh was barreling towards this level crossing at about 100 miles an hour in the Bentley. And just as he was getting towards it, I did the noise of a French train um, <laughs> approaching from the right. Uh, he locked up all four wheels and slid this car to a stop at the railway, railway line to find nothing. Um, us just peeing ourselves with laughter in the back. Um, and he never trusted me again from that day. <laughs> That, that, that's a super story, Mike. Um, la last year we had uh, Paddy Hopkirk here, and sadly it turned out to be the last interview really that, pa that Paddy ever did. And uh, we were talking about Paddy over, over, di over dinner. Can you tell your, your, your little story about Paddy and, the, and, and your, your helicopter trips? Oh, well, when I was being a helicopter instructor, on, on occasions I would have the use of helicopters to... Uh, if I was racing at Spa, a guy would say, yeah, you, you can take my helicopter. So instead of an eight-hour drive, I'd be there in two hours, which was wonderful. So I was flying helicopters a lot. And I lived about five miles from Paddy in um, Buckinghamshire. And I'd often fly over the top and think, oh, his car's there. And just put the helicopter in his back garden and go in for a cup of tea, <laughs> as you do. And Paddy always loved it. He always told stories about, hey, mate, you know, you're coming for a cup of tea. And he flies in my garden for a cup of tea. He'd tell it all the time. Yeah, great, great, great story, Mike. Well, you could go on for, for longer. I'm sure you've got uh, many more stories. But um, as Mike says, the rest of the stories are in his book. Um, <laughs> so he will be uh, very happy to, uh, to sell the remainder of his books. He was telling me so. Happy to sign them. <laughs> sign them as well. <laughs> So um, thank you all very much indeed uh, for uh, coming along uh, this evening. Look forward to seeing you at another talk. And uh, thank you very much indeed, Mike.